I have to confess that I was maybe a little nervous when Lady Stephanie Nelson asked me to provide this year's Lenten reflection. And the challenge, of course, is that the season of Lent can be viewed through so many different lenses. Now, our tradition tells us that the observance of Lent is of undoubtedly ancient origin, although most scholars don't think it to be of actual apostolic institution. And although the reference isn't explicit, a time of fasting prior to Easter is mentioned in the fifth canon of the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. So Lent goes back that far. In any case, it is certain from the festal letters of St. Athanasius in the year 331 that the saint enjoined on his flock a period of 40 days of fasting, preliminary to, but not inclusive of, the stricter fast of Holy Week. And secondly, that in the year 339, Athanasius, after having traveled to Rome and over the greater part of Europe, wrote in the strongest terms to encourage and and urge the observance of Lent upon the people of Alexandria because it was one that was universally practiced. He said, to the end that while all the world is fasting, we who are in Egypt should not become a laughingstock as the only people who do not fast but take our pleasure in those days. So all the way back in the 4th century, Lent was pretty firmly established. How many days is Lent? Yeah, the easy answer is 40. But we always run up against, well, do we count Sundays? Do we count, you know, the Triduum days? I think Lent is 43 and a half days long. Let me tell you how I get that number. The first day of Lent is Ash Wednesday, yes. And it runs up till, no, not Easter. The Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday. Liturgically, the Triduum is considered its own season. So, if you include all of those days, you get 43 and a half days. If you take out the Sundays, you don't even make it to 40. And while I understand that some people in their Lenten observance want to give themselves a little bit of a break on Sundays, when I open the Missal for Mass and look at the top of the page, it says, First Sunday of Lent. Second Sunday of Lent. It does not say third Sunday, which is not actually a part of Lent, but we put it here anyway. So my feeling is 43 and a half days. Culturally, Lent is still very much a part of us. I can tell you that at the University Catholic Center and at campus ministries all over the nation, Ash Wednesday is our busiest day of the year. Our students are all home at Christmas time. We have tiny crowds at Christmas. So when you can't get parking at your own parish on Christmas Eve, please think of us. Um, But this is our busiest time. We host six services on Ash Wednesday and an additional ecumenical service on campus. 
And we expect that more than 3,000 students will come through our doors this year. On a typical day, our website may score about 1,700 hits or page visits. In the three days before Ash Wednesday, that usually goes up to about 10,000 page visits or more. And it is always a great day for me because I get to witness the young people that we serve so hungry to be marked as Catholic Christians and so ready to begin the journey of Lent. Most importantly, throughout these 40 days, we are preparing for the Paschal Mystery that we'll celebrate during the Easter Triduum. We take as our example from the scriptures Moses, who spent 40 days on Mount Sinai with God and then led his people for 40 years through the desert, the prophet Elijah, who spent 40 days walking to Mount Horeb, Jonah, who announced to the people of Nineveh that they had 40 days in which to repent, and Jesus himself, who spent 40 days in the desert fasting and praying and preparing for his public ministry. It's no wonder, then, that we're so ready to celebrate those 40 days in preparation for Easter. For our spiritual ancestors, those 40 days were tremendously formative. And, of course, for some new members of our community, those about to be initiated at Easter, the season of Lent is a time of particularly intense preparation. So our seasonal prayers should also be the spiritual support for those catechumens and candidates. We're preparing to celebrate with them their entry into the Paschal Mystery. And we can't help but be aware of God's grace moving in their lives and renewing our communities of faith through them. <coughs> Pardon me. And as important as that communal renewal is, this is also a time of personal renewal for us, beginning with a call to individual repentance. And I think that people are more aware of their need for repentance than we give them credit for. You will often hear jokes about A&P Catholics, ashes and palms, the ones who show up only when we're giving something away, but, you know, I think that's terribly cynical. The truth is, we give something away at every Mass we celebrate. And, you know, it's a smear of ashes. It's not like we're giving away free pizzas or a new iPhone. I believe that people dive into Lent with such enthusiasm because they know that they're sinners and they want to be called to repentance and called back to faithfulness. We're ready for repentance, for renewal, and for a new dedication to physical and spiritual discipline. And for Catholics, Ash Wednesday is like another New Year's Day in which we start over, we make resolutions, and we live in the hope that we can change and that we can be better. I began today with the Gospel reading from Ash Wednesday. And it's appropriate for Ash Wednesday and for all of Lent because it outlines the three traditional practices that we observe during Lent. Prayer, 
fasting, and almsgiving. But even more importantly, Jesus tells us that these are to be interior disciplines, not to be done in order to impress other people or to be in any way self-serving. That's not easy, because we know that our motivations are almost never as pure as they ought to be. The irony of Jesus telling us on Ash Wednesday not to walk around with ashes on our heads isn't really lost on anyone. But because these are interior disciplines, Lent is a time to make important changes, but to do it for the right reasons. This might be a time to give up desserts, but if your motivation for doing that is you want to lose 10 pounds by Easter, that's not really the right motivation for that. So prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Aren't we supposed to be doing those things anyway? Well, yes, but this season is different. Just as Easter is different from the Sundays of ordinary time. Lent's practices are designed to help us focus more intently on those things that we're supposed to be doing all the time. And this is part of the real genius of Catholicism. We live in a cycle of seasons that connects us and our worship to the natural world around us but that also recognizes that as much as we need time on the mountaintops, we need time in the trenches as well. The Easter season is time on the mountaintop, and during Lent we're in the trenches, confronting our sins and temptations, and working through the disciplines necessary to get our lives back on track. To appreciate the joys of Easter, We really do need time in the trenches during Lent. It's important, I think, for us to acknowledge that one important element of our personal and communal renewal, our individual and collective turning away from sin, needs to be a renewed commitment to justice. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, justice is the moral virtue that consists in the constant and firm will to give their due to God and neighbor. Justice toward God is called the virtue of religion. Justice towards men disposes one to respect the rights of each and to establish in human relationships the harmony that promotes equity with regard to persons and to the common good. The just man, often mentioned in sacred scriptures, is distinguished by the habitual right-thinking and uprightness of his conduct towards his neighbor. That's how the Catechism defines justice. And when the precepts of our order challenge us to live virtuous lives... This is part of what we're called to, justice. I believe that a Lenten focus on the virtue of justice can keep our spiritual renewal and preparation for the Paschal Mystery from deteriorating into a kind of self-serving piety 
that Jesus warns against in the gospel that we read on Ash Wednesday. So let me read that definition one more time. Justice is the moral virtue that consists in the constant and firm will to give their due to God and neighbor. Justice towards God is called the virtue of religion. Justice towards men disposes one to respect the rights of each and to establish in human relationships the harmony that promotes equity with regard to persons and to the common good. The just man, often mentioned in sacred scripture, is distinguished by habitual right thinking and the uprightness of his conduct towards his neighbor. Put another way, and in maybe a single sentence, justice is the establishment and maintenance of right relationships. Right in this instance includes respect, harmony, equity, the common good, right thinking, and upright conduct. In Catholic social teaching, this is part of what distinguishes justice from charity. Charity is the compassionate serving of an immediate need to relieve human suffering. Justice looks at the systems of human relating and seeks to bring them healing and balance. So how do we practice justice during Lent? Prayer during Lent should help us with the restoration of our right relationship with God. This is prayer to promote reconciliation. Particularly as we prepare to celebrate Christ's restoration of our relationship with God on a cosmic level, we have to acknowledge that we have an individual obligation to do our part. Remember that forgiveness is unilateral and reconciliation is mutual. I can forgive you even if you don't forgive me. But reconciliation, which is deeper, requires the two of us to meet together and to forgive one another. We have faith that God's forgiveness is extended to us through Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. But for us to be reconciled, to restore our right relationship with God, we have a part to play. Even as we receive God's forgiveness, as I hope you do during this season, we have something to do to reconcile. That begins with prayer and hopefully includes penance. How you pray is entirely up to you, but I hope you include a communal aspect to prayer, whether that's a family rosary, 40 days for life, a parish reconciliation service, but also includes some reflective silence in which God can speak and you can listen. And because this is Lent, pray more than you usually do. <coughs> Pardon me. As prayer is restoration of right relationship with God, the aspect of fasting that touches on justice is the restoration of right relationship with yourself. To not eat, to abstain from particular foods, takes discipline. 
And it is this, this discipline that demonstrates that we are not entirely ruled by our appetites. I'm not sure what to say about this particular slide, except if someone put nothing in front of me but a bell pepper, I would probably have the same look on my face. <laughs> Fasting is an opportunity for us to turn away from reflexive consumption. The constant availability of calorie-laden food wasn't a problem for our ancient ancestors and is a luxury that's not afforded to most of the world today. That's why fasting is particularly important for us. We need it more. As important as it is, I'm afraid that we have lost touch with fasting as a spiritual discipline. Pardon me. Our required fasting days are so minimal. Do you know what they are? Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. We have two required fast days in the year. And yet, how easy is it to forget that we're supposed to do it? How many of you have gotten to the end of the day on Ash Wednesday or Good Friday and realized that you had a cheeseburger for lunch? The fact that we can forget to be hungry is prima facie evidence that we need to fast more often. And on top of those two days of requirements, is one hour before Mass too much to ask? Based on what I see on Sunday mornings, maybe it is. <laughs> but there is another reason for us to be aware and focused on both fasting and abstinence. And that is that it draws us away from the very subtle varieties of the sin of gluttony. And to give you a little bit of uh, a taste of the, the varieties of gluttony in our world, I'm going to play you a little bit of audio from The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite books of all time, I have to say. And if you've never heard it, the audiobook version is narrated by John Cleese from Monty Python's Flying Circus. If you're not familiar with the screw tape letters, it is a series of letters written from one devil to his nephew, giving him advice on how to corrupt a particular individual. So when he talks about our adversary, remember he's a devil and he's talking about the Lord God. And when he's talking about medicine, what he's talking about, the, the, the corrupt things that they do to try and bring down individual people. So let's take just a couple of minutes and listen to chapter 17 from the Screwtape Letters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
patience, uncharitableness, and self-concern. Do those as this old woman well She is a positive terror for hostess's answer. She is always telling what she's been off to say with a beautiful sign and smile. Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak, but not too deep. And the tea is meaningless, it's a big crystal. You see? Because what she wants is more and less costly than what has been said before, she never recognizes as glass her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome may be to us. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes she is practicing terror. In a crowded restaurant, she is a little screaming play which some overworked waitress has set before and says, Oh, that's not part of us. Take me to the floor. If challenged, she would say she was doing this to avoid waste. In reality, she does it because of the particular shape of delicacy which we have enslaved her. Offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work which Bluebirds has been doing for years is that it will be engaged by a way which very now dominates her life. The woman is in what may be called the All I Want Syndrome. All she wants is a tea, probably, or egg, or boiled, or a slice of bread, probably toasted. She never finds any servant or any friend who can do these simple things properly because her problem conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palate of pleasures which she imagines she remembers from the past. The past described her as the days when you could get good servant. Known to us as the days when her senses were more or less pleased and she had pleasures of other kinds to play her less dependent on those tables. Meanwhile, Thank you. 
Uncle screw tape. Uh, I, I really recommend the screw tape letters very highly if you are looking for some Lenten reading, and in particular this audio tape version, I just find delightful. But this notion that gluttony is always about the amount of food instead of about our attitude towards food um, can really lead us astray particularly in a society in which we have so much food around us all the time. You know, this, this gluttony of, of delicacy in which, oh, this, you know, I just want this, you know, despite the fact that someone just put something else in front of you. Or, you know, I've got to find the, pla- the only place that in this town that makes a decent fill-in-the-blank, steak, taco, whatever it is. Um, there is something about the, the power of food over us and the way it connects to our bodies that can be very challenging. And gluttony is not just about eating too much. It's about the power that we give food over all of us. It is worth noting that we are not required to abstain from meat on Fridays throughout the year the way we used to. But that restriction was lifted with the understanding that in place of that abstention from meat, we would put in place some other form of prayer or penance. So have you done that? I have to admit, in all honesty, that I have not. And that is an ongoing challenge for me. I've learned a lot about fasting from some of my Muslim friends. When I was at Ohio State, we had a Catholic-Muslim dialogue group that met every week where we would talk about our faiths and learn from each other. And for the entire month of Ramadan, they eat nothing from sunrise to sundown for a whole month, not even water. And when Ramadan falls in the middle of the summer, when the days are particularly long, that can be especially arduous. In contrast, our two days of required fasting come down to one normal-sized meal and two smaller ones. For Muslims, fasting is one of the pillars of their faith. It grounds them, it builds solidarity with the poor, and it's integral to the internal spiritual struggle that is essential to their faith. And somehow we have lost track of how fasting works and why we do it. In some ways, fasting is a personal and countercultural expression of faith that reminds us that we are embodied creatures and that we have to take personal responsibility for the gift of our bodies. Think of it as the most personal form of stewardship. Fasting reconnects us with our physicality and works to restore a disciplined, intentional, and just relationship with ourselves. 
Just as prayer restores right relationship with God and fasting restores a right relationship with ourselves, our Lenten practice of almsgiving is a matter of justice that restores right relationship with our neighbors. And this is a challenge for everyone as it should be. Whatever one's income, to give alms is a means of expressing virtues like charity and compassion. But it is also an essential element of justice. I have to say that I am constantly humbled and amazed by the generosity of our people. The church is entirely dependent on the giving of our people. And I can tell you from my own direct experience, the Catholic campus ministry will never be self-supporting and cannot survive on our Sunday offertory. Our students simply don't have the resources. I know that looking at the actual numbers, what our offertory is at the University Catholic Center and what it is at St. Austin's Parish one block away. And their offering every week tends to be 12 times what ours is. So we are entirely dependent on the generosity of other people. Without the generosity of the people and institutions that believe in our mission, we would have to close our doors. And our mission to serve, to be the body of Christ, is built on generosity. The act of giving is an acknowledgement that we are stewards of God's gifts, not owners of them. Part of the challenge of almsgiving as a spiritual practice is to make it more than writing a check. Don't get me wrong, those checks are awfully important. But in his brief but important book, The Spirituality of Fundraising, Henry Nouwen writes, Jesus also compares the kingdom to a mustard seed, which at the time of its sowing is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, once it is sown, it grows into the biggest shrub of all and puts out big branches so that the birds of the air can shelter in its branches. <coughs> Even a small act of generosity can grow into something far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. The creation of a community of love in this world and beyond this world, because wherever love grows, it is stronger than death. So when we give ourselves to planting and nurturing love here on earth, our efforts will reach out beyond our own chronological existence. Indeed, if we raise funds for the creation of a community of love, we are helping build the kingdom. We are doing exactly what we are supposed to do as Christians. I hope it goes without saying that Part of our task as the equestrian order of the Holy Sepulcher of Jerusalem is to make sure that we are sharing our resources to support the Christians in the Holy Land. And we do that not as the cost of membership in a group, but because we are helping to build a community of love in the lands where our Savior walked. That almsgiving is vitally important to us. I think our almsgiving has to have within it 
elements that are both spontaneous and planned. We never know when the Lord will present us with opportunities to give and to advance his kingdom. The challenge of spontaneous giving, of course, is that we might not really know where the gift is going. (coughs) Faced with a shifty-looking indigent person on the street, there might be a fear that our gift will go towards buying drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or something else of which we do not approve. And while I think it's important to exercise the virtue of prudence, If that's your overarching concern, then you either have trust issues or you're not really giving because your gift has some serious conditions attached. I think whenever possible, we need to err on the side of charity. Just as a brief sidebar, many of you who are longtime residents of Austin will know that the section of Guadalupe Street right beside the University of Texas for many, many decades, has been known to have a substantial homeless population, people panhandling out on the streets. And those folks are almost entirely gone. And do you know why they're gone? It is not because we've solved the problem of homelessness. It's that nobody carries cash anymore. People literally have nothing to give them. Just as spontaneous giving is important because it allows us to meet immediate needs and respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, I think it's also important that our almsgiving have some element of planning. The Gospel tells us stories of landowners, vineyard keepers, bridesmaids, shepherds, and kings, many of whom have their wisdom or foolishness revealed by the ways that they plan or fail to plan for the use and disposition of their resources. And this should raise the question, are you planning for how your resources will be used after you're gone? Support your priorities, leave a legacy, and plan for that. Almsgiving is a discipline of justice because it, plan, it, because it can or it should diminish inequity in the world. But any act of charity should also call us to justice. The restoration of right relationships with our brothers and sisters means that we are never content with the existence of poverty. The poor may be with us always, but that doesn't let us off the hook. If we really believe it, when in church on Sunday we sing, the Lord hears the cry of the poor, then we better make sure the poor aren't crying out against us. The picture you see on the screen behind me is a young man living in East Jerusalem. So part of our support for the Latin patriarch and his work is to bring help and assistance to people like him. We have to balance the fact that the poor are always with us with the faith that in God's kingdom our inequities will be remedied or reversed. Almsgiving is an expression of our hope for that kingdom and for those who receive those alms 
It should be a foretaste of that kingdom where all their hungers will be satisfied. So that's my take on prayer and fasting and almsgiving as a means towards justice. The call of this Lenten season is toward reconciliation. The practices of prayer and fasting and almsgiving prepare us for the Paschal mystery because they promote justice, creating and maintaining right relationship with God, with ourselves, and with our neighbors.